Hey, there's somebody that's been missing for a while. I how, know. How you doing? Good, Grandpa. How are you? Okay.
Good morning. I want to welcome you all to our service this morning. We have some visitors from out of town. Uh, please uh, take the time to catch up with them. Uh, most of the Clayton family is here today, or will be, so we're looking forward to that. Uh, let's do a couple of announcements. Uh, let's drop down the number five. Evening services will be tonight at 6 p.m. Bring drinks and a dish to pass. That is still on for tonight, correct? Okay. Uh, annual business meeting will be held this Wednesday, January 25th at 7 p.m. Uh, all the officers that have the responsibilities be prepared, please, to, to give you reports. Are there any other uh, messages, notes, comments, praise, concerns, prayer requests? Terry. So all the ladies that are invited to go to a lunch on, on uh, January 31st over at Lake Inn at noon. Lake Inn? At noon. at noon on January 31st. What day is that? Tuesday. It's a Tuesday. Okay. Ladies, take advantage of it. Sounds like a good time. Anything else? Marcy. Thank you for that. We don't fully know what God has in store for us. Sometimes he brings trials and adversity into our lives. I don't think always to test us, but I think to prove us to the world that no matter what befalls us, if we're in Christ, it doesn't matter, does it? In the final analysis, we are with him. With that said, our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from the Second Chronicles 33, verses 1 through 13, and that'll be page 723 in your pew Bible.
Would you stand with us as we begin our service in prayer? George, may I ask you to lead us in prayer? standing. You take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to number 345, 345 in the brown, and I'm going to have to ask that you sing really loud. I started with elementary schoolers this week, and my voice is done. <laughs> so sing loud, please. <laughs> 345 in the brown. Red, 
Do you have a reason for this song this morning? Thank you. 
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 15. It'll be verses 11 through 24, and that'll be page 1624 in your pew Bible. Please stand with us when you come to it. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, forgive me, forgive, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But then he came to himself. He said, how many of my, hired, my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired, one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Bring quickly the, sir, the, the robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Will you take your red hymnal and turn to number 500? Number 500 in the red.
Our scripture text this morning is Luke 15. We're looking at these parables where Jesus is explaining the gospel in terms of things that are lost. We've dealt with the lost sheep, the lost coins. We're now talking about the lost sons. And today's message deals with the older brother in these parables. Last day we looked at the parable of the lost son, but those are more sophisticated. Some are more sophisticated than others, but all men are sinners in rebellion to God. Secondly, the way of sinners is hard in this life. They think it's not, but it is. And number three, we learn that repentance is the way back to a right relationship to God and a restored and renewed life. We observe that God sent a famine to the far country, which had become the younger brother's utopia hideaway. What a hideaway. Poverty came in to a man had, who had made wealth his life. The famine was devastating. He was firstly awakened to his terrible plight and the sin which he had done against God's law and against his father. But awakening is not repentance. We should know that. Conviction is not conversion. These things are involved in the conversion process, but they are not the same. Many people have good intentions that never carry them out. They stop short of action. But at least he began to think about his misery and how he got there. This man, however, went beyond resolve. He got up, he went home to his father, verse 20. And that truth is that repentance brings us home to God. If you're really repentant of sin, you will come to God. Then we learn that when a person repents of his sin before God, God will abundantly pardon him, forgive him, restore him to sonship. And we pointed out these lessons. Number one, God, like the father in the story, actually looks for his wayward children to repent. He watches for their return to him. Remember in the story, he's looking out his window. He sees this figure coming across the plain. And he recognizes it as his estranged son. We learn when we return... There is no lecturing by God, no admonitions, no rebuke, but instead open and complete forgiveness and acceptance as his son who is entitled in Christ to all that belongs to Christ. What did he do? The father gave him a robe of righteousness. He put a ring of royalty and authority on his hand. He put sandals of the gospel of peace on his feet. These are all signs of forgiveness. 
Now today we come to the account of the older brother in this parable. Same parable, but a different person. Parable of the lost son, but now talking about his older brother. The first thing I need to point out is that this account is part of the story of the lost son. It's a continuation of the story. It shows the reaction of the older brother to the return of his younger brother to the family farm. And this account carries lessons of its own, which are vital to our understanding of ourselves and to the kingdom of God. We left off with the return of the young penitent who upon being forgiven by his father, he became the guest of honor at a welcome home party. Verse 22. The best clothing was provided. A ring for his finger. Sandals for his feet. The fattened calf, bread and race for just such special occasions, was slaughtered and the celebration began. Oh boy, but the older brother... He was still working in the fields when all of this came about. And as he approached the house, he heard music, he heard dancing, verse 25. So naturally he was curious as to what was going on. So he asked one of the servants who told him, Well, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound, verse 27. Well, you would have thought that would have been good news. But this instead infuriated the older brother, and he refused to join the festivities. So his father went out and pleaded with him. What he got was a close of pent-up anger from his older son who complained. Look at verses 19 and following. While he was still long a way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Well, your brother has come home, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf. He has him back safe and sound. 
the older brother became angry. He refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Three things are evident in this older son's response. Number one, he's full of self-pity and false appraisal. I have worked my fingers to the bones for you, Dad, and what do I get? Have you ever given me so much as a goat so I could throw a party with my friends? This just isn't fair. Now, this son thinks that he has been treated poorly by his father simply because a welcome home party has been thrown for his lost brother. He isn't concerned about his brother's return at all. He's all absorbed in himself and in the fact that he has been slighted as he sees it. But is that a fact? As the older brother, did he not receive two-thirds of the father's estate when his brother demanded his inheritance? Yes. Has he not continued to live on the farm, to be housed in his father's home, to eat at his father's table, to clothe himself from his father's sheep? Has he not had the general run of the estate to do as he pleased? Has he not had a social life in which he was able to develop those friends to which he referred? Yet he talks about slaving for his father for years. Verse 29. Does he really see no difference between himself and the work he has done on the farm as part owner and the servants who are at the beck and call as equally as they are to the commands of his father. Compare verse 22 with verse 26. It's a vast difference between being a servant and a son. People who are full of self-pity tend to exaggerate their position and distort the facts as this son was doing. They use words like every, always, never. Every time I try to do something on my own, you always criticize me. Never once have you praised me 
nor said to me, thank you. This is the older brother in our story. Could it also be you? In your discontent with your life, do you blame God for not being fair to you? For not giving you the same opportunities as others in the family of God? Could there be a little bitterness present in your heart that causes you to miscolor the facts and paint the picture black? Secondly, this older brother expressed his self-righteousness. He said to his father, All these years I have never disobeyed your orders. Let that sink in. Verse 29. Never. Never is another of those generalizations which are used by people to make themselves appear in a better light. It's a continuation of the distortion of reality. But self-righteous people seem to have no problem attaching the word never to the word disobedience. I've never disobeyed. This man is an adult son who has been reared by his fathers since childhood. And in all of those years, you mean to tell me that he had never disobeyed his father's orders? Paul says, if, never, if no one ever disobeys, he is a perfect man. And there's only one perfect man in history. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So this guy is like the rich young ruler who asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. And when Jesus told him to keep the commandments of God, he responded, all these I have kept from my youth up. Now, either such a person is greatly ignorant of the extent of God's commands or he is overtly confident, overly confident of his own abilities. The God who cannot lie tells us there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who does good, not even one. One. It's a very humbling thought to digest, but it's God speaking. This older brother, full of self righteousness, gladly brought up the matter of his younger brother's immoral escapades with prostitutes in the far country. Verse 30 But has he not ever looked upon a woman lustfully and thus committed adultery? within his heart in violation of the law of Christ, Matthew 5, verse 28. He accuses his brother of squandering his inheritance, of being a spendthrift, verse 30. All of which was true. It was true. But isn't his greed and his jealousy showing when he keeps bringing up this business 
of the fattened calf, which his father slaughtered to welcome home his lost son. He brings it up, verse 29, again in verse 30. Well, are there no other cattle on the ranch? Is the family farm bankrupt? See, even the younger brother knew that there was food aplenty back on the farm, verse 17. He's starving out in the wilderness. Comes to his sense and he says, boy, there's food back home. I'm, I'm going home. The self-righteous brethren exaggerate their own goodness by accentuating other people's badness. They point to their to other, other people's sin and they make the contrast to their own supposed obedience to God. This is what the older brother is doing. He's saying, look, Dad, at how faithful and loyal and hardworking and obedient to you I have been. And look at how Junior has squandered your property with prostitutes. Good son, bad son. Good son, bad son. Righteous, unrighteous. Righteous, unrighteous. One deserving the father's favor, the other deserving the father's wrath. This older brother was pleased with himself, justified himself for being angry with his father and jealous of his brother. Could that be you this morning? Are you generally pleased with your conduct before God and displeased with every other person's poor performance? Do you know how to live the Christian life but all the rest of us are failing miserably? Are you condescending and censorious in your attitude towards sinning, the sinning brethren in the church? Do you never sin? Do you think that your way of doing things makes you a better person than others? Is your standard of morality on a higher plane than the people of the congregation? Is your speech always seasoned with grace? Are your thoughts the best they can be about the people with whom you worship and work? Do you look upon the leaders of the church with contempt? Do you see yourself as being able to do a better job? If any one of these questions applies to you, you have a problem with self-righteousness. And if several of these questions hit home, you're consumed with self-righteousness. And if that is the case, Jesus warns you. Matthew 9, verse 13. I have not come to call the righteous, 
but sinners. Ooh. The calling and the election of God, notwithstanding, you're not among the number, so long as you consider yourself a notch or two above the general Christian population. Because no one is exempt from sin. No one. The third thing this older brother expressed was contempt for his younger sibling. The contempt just oozes out of his mouth. Verse 30. When this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes, you kill the flat, fattened calf for him. This son of yours. The word this, as it is used by the older brother, is used with contempt. We do the same thing. The wife will say, well, this husband of mine had the audacity to pick his teeth at the dinner table the other night when we had guests over. She's angry. She's embarrassed at her husband's uncouth manners. So she doesn't say, my husband. She says, this husband of mine. Men do the same thing. Well, this wife stir served stringy ham was stuck to my front teeth. What am I supposed to do? Spend the night grinning with a piece of meat sticking out of my teeth? But should we, speak, should we be speaking contemptuously to or about the people we say we love? Maybe that was the problem with the older brother. Maybe there was no love lost between the two of them as they grew up together. But I think the problem runs deeper. I believe it is related to the older brother's belief that he has lived a righteous, obedient life while his brother has lived the life of a profligate. But who gets the reward? Why, dad honors the rebel. Hello. May I say that the older brothers of this world know nothing about grace. That is why he was jealous of his younger brother's welcome home party. In his mind, his brother had not earned such a welcome but he had. He looked upon the fattened calf as something the father should have given to the son who had demonstrated a life of obedience and loyalty to dad. So when his father gave away the prized calf to throw a party for the wayward and disobedient brother, he was filled with contempt and scorn. This son of yours... 
this son of yours. He wasted the estate with wild living and prostitutes. How would you have handled this older son had you been the father in the story? Would you have done as this father did? Firstly, the older son would not come into the house to his father, so the father went out to him. Verse 28. He treated this pouting son in the same way he treated his wayward son when he was yet afar off and ran to meet him. Verse 20. So here is a father who loves his sons, not for what they are in terms of their compliance with house rules, but for who they are. Well, who are they? They are his children. And he loves them equally. He is just as disturbed that his older son has not come to the party as he is that the wayward son had not stayed home with the family but ran off to the far country. Secondly, this father pleaded with his older son. The Greek word here is parakaleo, to beseech, to encourage, the word means literally kaleo, to call, para, alongside, to call alongside. This was an attempt by the father to reason with his son. And the substance of his reasoning is given in verse 31 to address his older son's self-pity and falsification of the facts. He tells him, my son, you... You are always with me. And everything I, everything I have is yours. In other words, not just the fat and gaff. The estate, the farm. And to counter his older son's self-righteousness, he says, We had to celebrate and be glad. We had to do that. He's saying to his son, you, you can't see that not being glad over a lost family member coming home, you can't see that that's a great sin? That one dead in trespasses and sins is now alive in Christ. That's an occasion of joy. That's an occasion of celebration. Can't you see that? And then finally, the challenge his son's contempt when he said to his, of his brother, this son of yours, The father responds by saying, this brother 
of yours. Was dead and is alive again. We are not told by Jesus whether the older son responded properly to his father's entreaty. We are just left with the reasoning behind the father's actions towards the younger son and what should have been the response of the older brother if he had been thinking straight and if he had had the proper love for his family ties. Jesus just leaves it there. And leaves it in our mind to mull over and think through and put some thought to it and analyze ourselves in the mirror of God's word. What then is the meaning of this section of the parable? How does the actions of the older brother speak to our own hearts? Well, to understand these closing words of the story, we have to go to the opening words, to the preamble. Look at verse 1 and following of this chapter. Now tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. Okay? But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man, here's that contempt again, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. As I said in a previous study, this story is about two classes of people in the world. Those who are sinners and know it, and those who are sinners and don't know it. The younger brother who came to his senses in the far country after living a life of sensual pleasure and financial abandon represents all those people who at some point in their life they sit down and they honestly assess their misery and they see that their heartache is due to their own sin. What a wake-up call. And in being awakened to their sin, they come home to God who welcomes them with joy and celebration. And the older brother represents the Pharisee type people who are pleased with their own performance in the things of God. They do not see that they have strayed from the path at all because through it all they have been in the church with the people of God. They maintain their religion in spite of the temptations to ditch it and live in the world. They are the loyalists. They are the purists. They are the self-righteous who have nothing from which to repent. And these same people have trouble with God who is generous with his forgiveness and magnanimous with his mercy. Oh, I can't figure this God out. No, they want God to punish sinners, not save them. 
to let the lost go to hell where they belong. They certainly do not expect God to invite them to dine at his table. They, they just cannot understand all the hubbub over some whoremonger coming out of his immorality and now being treated as though nothing wrong ever happened. They're thinking it did happen. And so why treat this guy like he were some saint? Sadly, this is more the picture of modern Christianity than we would like to think. There are thousands of professing Christians who dislike a free and full proclamation of the gospel of grace. They're always complaining that ministers are throwing the door too wide open. They fear that preaching grace and not law will lead to licentiousness among the converts and that holiness in the main will decline if grace is not tempered with some restraintful warnings from Sinai, from the law. But our Lord represents God as a father who is, verse 20, filled with compassion. Filled with compassion. He portrays God being no less than this all the while his wayward son is away. And when his son returns there is no slavery imposed upon his son, even though his son requested it. Verse 19. Instead, the father forgives freely with no strings attached. And he forgives completely so that the wayward son is restored as his son with all of his privileges retained. Verse 22. He is not tethered with an electronic tracking device lest he wander off again in the future into forbidden paths of sin. No, he is fully loved, fully forgiven, fully restored, and that means that he is fully trusted to live his new life in a sober, well-disciplined manner that will be a testimony to the grace that he has received. Having once wandered off into the far country in rebellion, he is not subjected to the law of God to keep him in line for the future. Well, he couldn't stand grace, so we'll slap him with the law. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. No, it is his love of God that will keep him in line not a sense of sheer duty. 
the law of his father, the orders of the father, verse 29, never kept his son from disobeying. Nor was it the law which restored him, but it was his father's compassion that restored him. It was the father's grace. It was the father's forgiveness. By contrast, the law of God is everything to the older brother. It's the law to which the older brother appeals when seeking to justify himself as an obedient son. All these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Verse 29. Slaving for slaving for you is that how this son has viewed his obedient service to God huh. well then if it was enslaving has the obedience been willing hmm. has it been freely offered or begrudgingly extracted first and foremost commandment of God is that we are to love God with all of our soul, our strength, our minds, our heart, so that any service viewed as slavery must, by definition, be tainted by sin, at the very least, the sin of resentment. Obedience to God's law, brethren, does not make us holy. Or as we see in the older brother, doesn't necessarily make us conscious of our sin. It is grace that makes us holy. And it was grace that awakened the younger brother to his sin. As he sat in the far country, contemplating the farm homestead, what was it that he thought about? Verse 17, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? Notice, not just food to meet the bare necessities of subsistence, but food to spare. From a generous father who not only treated his immediate family in this way, but his hired hands as well. And it was his father's grace that broke this young man's willfulness, not his father's rules. So what do we do with the self-righteous of our day? I mean, they are so smug and full of pride that we almost have a backlash reaction. We withdraw. We don't want to be around people like that. And we wonder why they can't see their sin when it is readily apparent to everyone as onlookers. Verse 
What did God do as the Father in this parable? Well, he went out to the older son and entreated him to come into the family of God along with the brother of his that he viewed with such contempt. And this is all the more amazing when we remember that the older brother stands for the Pharisees and chief priests of Jesus' day. And it's true that these people were the avowed enemies of Christ. Even as this older brother acted more like an enemy than a brother to his younger sibling. And it is true that Jesus on numerous occasions went toe-to-toe with these teachers of the law over their harsh views and their cruel demeanor towards the very people of Israel over whom God had placed them as spiritual leaders. You want to read about it? It's in Matthew 23. But here we see the heart of God, even towards the self-righteous. He entreats them. He pleads with them to abandon their anger, their jealousy, their self-indication. Join the ranks of the redeemed. Have you ever thought that self-righteousness is the sin of these people's hearts, which has blinded their eyes to the truth of God, just as greed and covetousness and a lust for the things of the world blinded the eyes of the younger brother to do the good things in God he left behind. Sin by any other name (laughs) is still that which causes men to stand aloof from God. Sinners can be in the far country, thousands of miles away from home, or they can be right in the church, sitting next to God in the pew, so to speak and still be distant and lost from him. And the Bible does not portray one sinner as being more virtuous than another, or of being in a more favored position to respond aright to God. No. All men are lost apart from the entreaty of God the self-righteous brother in the father's house and the younger rebel son sleeping in a house of ill repute, they are equally estranged from God. The one loves himself more than God and the other loves pleasure more than God, but both are oblivious to their sin. What I am saying is that the gospel that Jesus preached is for any and all sinners. What is more, it saves the self-righteous as well as the notorious sinner. Remember, there was a tax collector and a cheat among Jesus' disciples. His name was Matthew. And a couple of hotheads named James and John 
who had little compassion for the Samaritans who snubbed the Lord, and they petitioned Jesus, Bring down fire on them! Luke 9, verse 54. Oh, there's love. And there was doubting Thomas. And there was Peter, the one who denied his Lord not once, not twice, but three times. And all of these men, rather blatant and obvious in their pettiness and sin, and men who knew their failures and perceived their guilt when confronted with the holiness of Christ. But then there was also Nicodemus, who, as a Pharisee, came to Jesus at night and heard the gospel that a man must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. You and I wouldn't have given him the time of day, let alone the time of night when we want to relax. But it was to Nicodemus that Jesus said these immortal truths. God so loved the world that he gave us one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. John 3 verse 16 said to Nicodemus and Nicodemus was challenged by Jesus to come to the light and have his evil deeds exposed and forgiven Nicodemus went home with that witness in his mind and eventually touched his heart it was Nicodemus who defended Jesus before the Jewish council. Who were violating their own law by condemning Jesus before allowing him to speak. John 7 verse 15 following. It was Joseph of Arimathea, another Pharisee, who refused to consent to the decision and action of the council to condemn Jesus, Luke 23, verse 51. What's going on here? And this Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and requested Jesus' body after his crucifixion. It was Joseph, along with Nicodemus, who prepared spices and wrapped Jesus' body in cloth strips, according to Jewish custom, and buried him in a new tomb. John 19, verse 40. New converts. Look what they're doing. Because grace touched their hearts. And then to use Paul's own words of a man born out of due season, Jesus Christ appeared to him when he was known as Saul the persecutor of Christians. 
And this Pharisee was full of self-righteousness and against the Jesus people of his day and felt justified in his own pursuit and execution of all those who were disciples of Christ. Yet God came to him and entreated him and drew him to himself. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, Saul of Tarsus, all three self-righteous Pharisees, older brothers living in the Father's house, just as estranged from God as their younger counterparts living in the streets. But God did not abandon them to their self-righteousness, and neither may we. The gospel Jesus preached and the gospel which saves sinners is for the up and outs as well as for the down and outs. And we have not done our task to dismiss the older brother as hopeless. As Jesus told Nicodemus, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. This is the hope of the gospel which Jesus preached. Father, we thank you for your word that you are a Savior of sinners whether they're up and outs or down and outs, whether they're smug and self-righteous or they can't even lift their head towards heaven when they pray because they're so overtaken with their sin. Whatever category we find ourselves today, we need God's grace and wonder of wonders. He displays his grace lovingly, graciously. When he spreads the table, it is full of all this sumptuous food that will strengthen our souls and bring forgiveness and light to the darkness in which we find ourselves. Lord, for those still darkened in sin today, still lost in the abyss of forgetfulness and unrighteousness and licentiousness and hatred of God. Come to them today. Show yourself as the Savior you are. We pray for your glory and our good. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity, the Red Hymnal, 485 in Trinity. Four eight five in the Trinity.
Mine's red, but I think yours is green. <laughs> no, it's red. When you find 485, will you stand with me? <clears throat> Words are new, but the tune is familiar. Should be familiar. Thank you. 
I'm going to ask Phil and Dale if they would lead us in prayer for Jared. Jared is going to have heart surgery this week. Very dangerous. He's got an aneurysm on the aorta of the heart, the main valve. And uh, when do you go in, Jared? Uh, tomorrow at 7. Tomorrow at 7. This is the first surgery. Okay. So, <clears throat> first surgery at 7. So, if you guys, you two guys would lead us. Lord, this day, that we remember him and his family, especially during this time of great affliction. And uh, we thank you for their testimony, and we thank you for their spiritual strength, and we just pray that your grace is sufficient. We ask this in Christ's name. Father, we just we just pray that. 
his family. Lord, we pray for success, we pray for healing, and we pray for life. Lord, uh, we know that you can do all of these things, and we just pray that you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, help Jerry to keep his focus on Christ and to understand that Christ loves him and died for him, that he might be saved, not lost. We praise you and thank you, Lord, for your wonderful truths in the scripture. And as we see Christ moving among the people of Jerusalem, healing them from all kinds of sores and uh, life-threatening diseases, from leprosy, from bleedings. We have a number of accounts of that. And we pray, Lord, that you will be with Jared and watch over him tomorrow and be with his family too. And give them the strength and prayers. May we be prayerfully reminded tomorrow to pray, to pray, to pray that God may hear and heal. Amen.
this procedure. Not only that, guide his thoughts, guide his thinking, make him attentive. Make all the people on the team more understanding their whereabouts and their situation. Let them be completely in tune with one another. Let them not overlook anything. As the surgeon uses the scalpel and the other tools, Lord, we know that he is doing the operation, Lord. You, oh Lord, are guiding his thoughts. You are guiding his steps. You are guiding the procedure. You will guide the tools that are be used to perform this surgery, this operation. Now, Lord, we also know that whatever happens, we must understand that you operate in this realm on your own terms, not ours. Father, what will be our, our position in the afternoon tomorrow when the procedure is complete? I would submit, Lord, that if we are in tune with you, if our prayers are correct, whatever the circumstance, we will give you the honor and the glory that you so richly deserve. And we will be satisfied that you will be saved. But Lord, we still come to you as selfish individuals, not wanting anything but the positive to end and end well for our brother. We know in our hearts his position. We know your position. And in all this, Lord, we pray that you would prove our positions. This, again, is not a test, but, Lord, this is the proving of your servants, of your children, to the world that our faith would be undiminished in the knowledge that your will would be performed in our brother's life. Yet we still pray, Lord, that you would give them back to us at hand. He has done wonderful things for this church and for these people. He has been a good minister to us. An eloquent elder. One who has consoled the soul of many, myself included. And to his father, we are so grateful for what you have done for us in this small church. Pray, Lord, that you would stay us for tomorrow, that you would keep us focused, because where two or three are gathered in prayer, Lord, you are present. We know that, but we also know, Lord, that there are strength in numbers. And in all this, Lord, we pray that whatever your decision is, we will abide by it. We again will give you honor and glory. Watch over us, Father. Guide our own hearts. Guide our own thoughts. Guide our speech. Be with our brother's family, with the daughters, with his wife, Andrea. That they be comforted in all of this, up until, including, and even after the procedure. Prepare us, Father. 
steady the soul. Amen. We are dismissed. Yes, it's it's at McLaren and Flint. Oh, McLaren and Flint. Yes. Yep. Yep. He thought it was in the office, and I didn't think so because they have to use anesthesiology. So. Oh, I thought that was going to be at the. Uh, so did he. Place up the. That's what he thought too. But nope, we're going to the hospital. Okay. Yep. Early. Really early. Is it Hurley or? At no, McLaren. Earlier than school. Jason, nice to see you. I didn't get to say anything to Jeff, but he looks so different. You look.